This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. How are you being channeled? When humans are unhappy, they gather to protest or riot, perhaps. But now, especially during years of pandemic, many find their activism online. Meanwhile, governments, corporations, and tech-savvy individuals find new ways to block social dissent. Probably no one has studied repression more than professor and social scientist Jennifer Earle. Dr. Earle teaches and leads projects at the University of Arizona. She writes a lot of useful papers, and her book is Digitally Enabled Social Change. Jennifer is uniquely qualified to speak about online tools for activists and the relatively new subject of digital repression. From Tucson, Arizona, Jennifer Earle, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks so much for having me, and thank you for that kind introduction. Well, Jennifer, what stimulated you to engage in your life work on social expression and the mechanisms of control? I've always been interested in how people try to create change, but... I've also been interested in the law, which many people think about as a force for change, but as someone who grew up as the daughter of a lawyer, I realized could often be used to thwart change. And so at the same time that I've been interested in social movements, I've been interested in how state and private actors try to control and constrain protest, sometimes using legal tools and sometimes using extra legal tools. Um, And in my discipline, that's referred to as the study of social movement repression. And do you think online activism is a real thing, or are we kidding ourselves? I absolutely do think it's a real thing. And I think that it introduces new models of power that have not been accessible before. And I actually think one of the places where people maybe go wrong in thinking about digital activism is that they think about it as a replacement as opposed to a broadening of a repertoire. If we have conventionally had to, for instance, rely on the media to promote and share social movement messages based on protests and social movement activity, people now have a chance to directly reach out to other people and try to publicize their views and beliefs and also to use digital tools to organize, which may in some ways allow them to organize around broader range of issues and bring new types of people into activism. One of the things that I always like to point out about digital activism is that it also introduces a new model of power, which some have called flash activism, likening it to the power of a flash flood. So if our traditional model of the power of activism is something like the the rising tide and erosive force of water flowing, just the constant pressure for change, One of the forms of power that digital uh, activism can be very good at is something that's much more like a flash flood. It just brings so much attention and so much concern to an issue, albeit sometimes for a short period of time, but that short period of time can, can overwhelm systems and lead to change. And so I often encourage people to think about this as a broadening of a repertoire of protest as opposed to a substitution. Well, just to get us rolling on your new study, could you give us a couple of examples of digital repression? Certainly. So digital repression really refers to two different kinds of things, and both are are important to understanding a broader repressive repertoire online. 
the first kind of thing it refers to is the targeting of individuals for repression based on their digital presence. And that targeting may be for traditional forms of of repression, like arrest. So, for instance, Jennifer Pan, one of my co-authors on the Science Advances piece that we're talking about today, has studied the arrest of Saudi bloggers and the impact of those arrests on their audience uh, behavior. So it can be the use of traditional repressive tools, but targeting people because of their activity online. Or it could be also the use of digital tools to engage in repression. So there you're thinking about things like filtering what people can get access to online, using online surveillance to understand networks of people or who's trying to access information. But it can also involve information channeling, which operates by not trying to control or limit access to information as, for instance, traditional censorship has done, but instead to distract people or to provide them with misinformation or disinformation. So in China, for instance, an example of information uh, channeling that's really about distraction would be posts from the 50 Cent Army, which is basically fee-for-post posters who post online to cheerlead the Chinese state and sort of distract from political issues that the Chinese state doesn't want people paying attention to. But then it would also include more covert forms of information channeling like disinformation. So a disinformation campaign really depends on the fact that at least some people will believe it so that it is false or fake um, is is hidden. And we're seeing those kinds of campaigns in really clear uh, resolution in Russia right now. With grants from institutions like the National Science Foundation, you worked through the history of protests since the 1960s when it was common for police to use beatings, tear gas, and, and just arrest the protesters. Uh, and, and in the 1900s, government and business refused to hire or fired communists and gays and people of color. Tell us about the social study of repression before the online world emerged. Certainly. Unfortunately, you're exactly right. As long as people have been challenging authorities, authorities have been challenging them and trying to limit, repress, prevent, curtail, or stop their activities. So that falls under the, the broad umbrella of the study of social movement repression, where we're really specifically interested in not sort of general controls of whole populations, but particularly the control of protest. And classically, we've thought about some of the same kinds of dimensions that we can use to think about digital protest. So we've thought about, for instance, differences between the types of actors who engage in repression. And in the examples you just gave me, you mentioned private companies, which is certainly private actors um, have traditionally and continuing to today and including using digital tools tried to repress but also national governments. So you made reference to like the FBI's COINTELPRO program, but then state and local governments have also, and police forces have also tried to repress protest across time. 
so we've traditionally tried to understand two things about repression, whether it's being done by state or private actors, which is what leads repressors to engage in repression, and then what are the consequences of repression. And it's really interesting because the literature has an incredible amount of agreement about what leads to at least traditional forms of repression. And one of the questions that is that arises with digital repression is whether or not there will be such a high level of consensus about what leads to digital repression. But for traditional forms of repression, the literature really focuses on the more threatening a protest movement is to a particular actor, whether that actor is state or private, the more likely that actor is to try to repress. And threats can exist for a wide variety of reasons. They can exist because you have large number of people involved in your movement. They could exist, some people call the what I'm about to tell you, the mismatch hypothesis, that your movement is strong, for instance, in a territory where the state is weak. And so even though your movement may not be a national movement, um, because it has strength where the state doesn't, it'll be threatening. In the United States, I've looked at what kinds of things are threatening to police officers. That is, what kinds of things do police officers perceive as threats to themselves? For instance, it's quite common to find that that the presence of counter-demonstrators, which produces real conflict at protesters, creates a heightened sense of threat for police officers, but also the use of particular kinds of tactics. On the other hand, we've also studied what's the consequences of repression. And there, the literature has almost no consensus. It turns out that you could give me almost any hypothesis you want about what repression will do to individual protesters, the movements they represent, or the broader public, and I can find you a study that will support it. So if you want to think that repression successfully deters protest or future protest, I can find a study that will support it. If you want to say no, it backfires, and it actually gets individual protesters to double down and radicalize or brings bystanders into a movement, I can find a study that will show that. We could talk about, you know, tons of other explanations or, or expected relationships that people have had, and it turns out it's a really indeterminate relationship. So I think one of the big surprises for people when they learn more about the study of social movement repression is that it's a real gamble for authorities, that we think about, you know, oh, if people are going to repress, that that's automatically going to be effective for them. But that's not at all what the literature shows. Well, that could be interesting. When we take the case of the Russian government, they just made a law threatening up to 15 years in jail for calling an invasion an invasion. And that's public and overt, and it's meant to be. But there are also some covert control mechanisms that governments are taking in the digital age. Could you tell us about a couple of those? So one of the big uses of digital tools for covert purposes is for various kinds of surveillance. And that surveillance happens, an important point we make in this science advances piece, is that that surveillance happens in democratic and more authoritarian nations. And so oftentimes people think about repression as being something that autocrats have a monopoly on. Um, But unfortunately, historically and today, that's not true. 
democratic regimes and authoritarian regimes both use repressive tools and often use draw from sort of similar repertoires, even if the extent, amount, severity of that repression may differ between democracies and autocracies. So digital surveillance certainly happens. Uh, local police in the United States use things like stingrays to try to listen into uh, and intercept cell phone conversations. Some nations use their own uh, custom-built platform surveillance tools. Others buy those tools actually from private companies who sell them that allow the state to monitor what kinds of requests people are making, to block requests, um, to filter material, or even to just rate limit it so that it's it's sort of throttled. You can't get as much. And that can be an important source of information about dissent, both who's dissenting and what they're dissenting about when used for surveillance. But then once you go into the actual obstruction of that information, you're talking about a different form of repression. So when we go to actual throttling, when we go to actual filtering, we're talking more about information control forms. And we're certainly seeing that in Russia. We see it in China. Um, we see it in a variety of nations where there are various obvious but oftentimes covert forms of information control that are put into place so that you just can't get some things. And then, of course, there's what we were talking about before, efforts where you don't try to completely eliminate the ability to access information because, let's face it, that's hard to do online. But instead, you try to distract most people away from the information that you don't want them to notice. One way to think about this is you sort of weaponize the information overload of the Internet. Um, things may be out there that, as a government, you don't want people to see. And so it, it turns out it's really hard to entirely remove people's access to see that. And so many nations now use some form of what Citizen Lab's Ron Debert called active engagement, where you try to distract people away from the information that you don't want to see by entertainment-related posts, government cheerleading, or by disinformation. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with our guest sociology professor and researcher Jennifer Earle. We are discussing the new paper that she led. It's titled, The Digital Repression of Social Movements, Protest and Activism, A Synthetic Review. Well, Jennifer, I'm also concerned, and I know you are too, from the paper that with all the tools available like YouTube and TikTok and so on, it's a mistake to just focus on repression by big governments. I mean, even individuals can get involved in this. Absolutely. One of the points that we make in reviewing the literature is exactly how important private repressors are to understanding the overall landscape of repression around the globe. And introducing private actors introduces a great deal of complexity into that situation because private actors get involved in repression for a wide variety of reasons. So some of those reasons may have to do with pressure that they themselves face from governments that are regulating them or allowing them into their country. So, for instance, the regulations that you see Russia putting on platforms right now are 
uh, a big part of the reason that platforms like TikTok have stopped allowing uploads uh, about, you know, from Russia in order to comply with this new Russian law. And China has a, a kind of different relationship with media that has allowed, they've kept media companies more dem- domestic in China, which allows them to have the Chinese government to really, even though they're private companies, to apply a lot of pressure to those companies. But then you have companies who are engaged in repression purely for their own motives, uh, which may be profit-driven or otherwise. Sometimes these are very short-term ventures. So, for instance, there is evidence of Facebook uh, getting rid of accounts related to protesters um, before particular financial transactions that would benefit Facebook were going to take place to sort of clean up Facebook to make it look more attractive to investors. But sometimes uh, those repressive activities are much more part and parcel to uh, the overall uh, profit motives of that company. Um, and as you pointed out, individuals can get into this game, too. So uh, one of, uh, like, a very serious issue right now um, is online harassment of protesters. Um, that can be done in a collaborative way, but it can also be individuals acting on their own who are using the availability of information about people online to target other individuals um, and attack them or harass them uh, for their political engagement. Companies like Google, Facebook, and Twitter say they are neutral, just selling advertising. But I think one shocking realization from your study, the Internet is not really a free speech zone at all. What is the reality when private companies control so much of the public conversation? I'm so glad that you raised this point because I think it's something that many people don't realize So in the United States, where we think about ourselves as having free assembly and free speech rights, those are actually really controlled by a kind of legal set of doctrines called public forum law. And they basically say that depending on where you're standing, you have different kinds of rights. So if I go to a private property, I don't actually have any free speech or assembly rights. I can be asked to be quiet or to leave um, by the people who own that property. And then uh, even if what I want to say is is politically motivated and about politics, I can be charged with trespass or or other things if I stay. Um, my, My free speech rights really come into play when I am on public grounds, like if I'm on a in a park or on a sidewalk, and to a more limited extent in some kinds of public use, publicly owned buildings. One thing that had been noted before the rise of digital activism, the pervasive use of digital tools for activism, was that already in the United States, audience was sort of shifting from these kinds of large public venues, parks, um, sidewalks, busy city streets, to much more privatized settings like ballparks, privately owned parks, suburban uh, neighborhoods. And this was already creating problems for protesters and gaining audience. So um, two sociologists, uh, John McCarthy and Clark McPhail, wrote about this and basically said protesters were in a real bind because they were having to choose between 
having a big audience but not having the same protections that they would have to gain that audience by going into private spaces like malls, sports arenas, et cetera. Um, or they could go to those parks and use those sidewalks where they did have free speech rights, but they wouldn't have nearly as large of audiences. Online, that situation is even worse because we do not have an equivalent of a public park. We do not have an equivalent of a public access public building. We do not have the equivalent of a public sidewalk. We have privately owned servers, which means that the kinds of free speech and assembly rights that we think about ourselves enjoying are not rights that unproblematically transfer into digital spaces. And so when we think we're speaking, quote unquote, freely on Facebook, um, on uh, posting pictures through Instagram, um, on TikTok, we really are effectively speaking in private spaces, which means that those companies have the ability to limit, to kick people off, to otherwise um, influence what can be on their platforms. And that is a really concerning turn because there are not public alternatives. I post video interviews about extreme climate change on YouTube, but if you search climate change there, you're far, far more likely to get anti-science rants by Alex Jones than Alex Smith. Controversy sells, even when it's dangerous. Do you think algorithms are set really to work against the truth in some cases? Oh, this has been such a a big issue with YouTube and Facebook. Um, and to some extent what surfaces on Google uh, in in higher-level search results, like first-page results, those algorithms are the sort of secret sauces of those companies, and they're very protective about them. And there does seem to be indication, for instance, from leaked documents from the Facebook whistleblower who uh, was a Facebook employee and then took a tranche of documents and has made them public, there does seem to be really good evidence that companies like Facebook understand that what their algorithms are doing are not pro-social or pro-democratic, but they're profitable. And that puts many, many nations in not just the U.S. for sure, in a very difficult position because you have companies that are so influential as spaces in what people can gain ready access to learn about, and yet what's being delivered to you isn't necessarily a reflection of what's true, what's most trusted. Those algorithms, as you as you suggested, are built to deliver for those companies. And whether or not we can see those companies change for themselves versus governments having to force them to change remains to be a very open question. Jennifer, what about cases where the majority of citizens want digital repression, like bans on child pornography? Well, as repression researchers, we wouldn't really consider a ban on child pornography to be social movement repression because there's not really a, a social movement, an attempt for change that is that is getting 
harassed or limited through those bans. So I do want to make a distinction between governance and repression. While it is the case that both of them control things, repression is control that is attempting to stop social movements and political expression. So I think we're always going to have governance. (laughs) And There is an incredible amount of research about the ways in which government governance can be racialized or serve class interests or otherwise be unequal. But we do want to separate those kind governance broadly from the study of social movement repression more specifically. Almost 20 years ago, you published a paper, Tanks, Tear Gas, and Taxes Towards a Theory of Movement Repression. Well, the tanks may have been replaced by shadow banning, but do you think social movements can continue as a force for good in the digital age? Absolutely. I think one of the most important messages from the literature on social movement repression is that it doesn't always work. And people and the movements that they represent have shown just a tremendous resilience to keep pressing for change, to be resilient to attempts to quash movements. And while sometimes repression does work and you do see movements that go away or people who leave activism because of it, it's just not the case that repression is a silver bullet for authority holders, power holders, to deal with democratic expression and and protest. The second thing I'll say there is that one of the other large shifts that social movement scholars have documented over the last 30 to 40 years is the rise of what social movement scholars call social movement societies. And the basic idea of a social movement society is that in countries like the U.S., Canada, many Western European nations, protest has become such a regular part of political participation that it's really hard to think about political participation in sort of old-school ways of just about voting, that really social movements and the persistence of people engaging in social movements has transformed what it even means to be political in a way that includes activism. So I, I think that it is absolutely true that repressors have, for a very long time, tried to stop protest. And will continue to do so into the future, and will continue to adopt new tools, expand existing tools, as we see with digital repression. But it is also true that activists will use some of those tools to forward their own causes. Some of those activists and some of those movements will be resilient and sometimes even grow as a result of repression as repression backfires. Jennifer, your website contains many tools for online activists to learn more about this playing space. You even offer a free spreadsheet bibliography of resources. What is your aim? I believe that people should have a voice. I think it's really important for people to engage politically. I think it's important for people to press for power holders in their lives, whether those are companies or governments, to be more responsive to them. My aim is to try to help people understand how they can do that and how they can do that more effectively, what the risks they may face when they do that are, and to try to understand how to manage some of those risks. 
And as we wrap up here, what are the next big questions you hope to answer? Well, I think that a really pressing issue facing a wide variety of scholars, including digital repression scholars and repression scholars more generally, are about the dynamics of disinformation and polarization. I think one of the things that we're seeing clearly both in Russia and in the United States, and the comparison actually maybe helps, is that you don't have to be able to censor information to be able to spread a great deal of disinformation as long as people are willing to be distrustful of legitimate information that they're getting. Put differently, you could look at the new censorship law that Russia passed that you mentioned earlier that makes it a crime to refer to the invasion as an invasion or war, and you could think that's such a high level of of censorship, and it is. But even if people keep talking about the invasion and the war, if they're talking to people who just don't believe that that's true, that it's fake news, and there are reports of people in the Ukraine calling their Russian parents or Russian relatives and talking to them about the war, and those relatives saying, what are you talking about? This is a a, a special military operation. There's no war, and we're helping you save your country because it's being taken over by Nazis. Um, Those people, it's not that they just don't have access to information. You could give them lots of information about the war, and they're not believing it. In the United States, where we don't have the same kinds of information controls, we're still finding that people are very willing to – I shouldn't say people are very willing. Some people are willing to believe uh, disinformation. And when it gets promoted and repeated from sources that they trust, belief in it can grow. And, you know, now you have surveys of the Republican Party showing that substantial percentages of Republican Party members don't believe that Biden probably won the U.S. election. And what that tells us is we're sort of past a moment where censorship is what prevents people from knowing the truth. Now we're at a place where also distrust can prevent people from knowing the truth. And those are very different information dynamics that I think we'll be trying to understand the full impact and dimensions of for some time to come. From the University of Arizona, we've been speaking with Dr. Jennifer Earle, professor of sociology. Her years of published papers are a goldmine for activists, whether online or on the streets. Find links you need in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Jennifer, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. This was a real pleasure. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Predictions of a global food crisis are coming in from all sides, in scientific journals, the business press, and news from China. Yes, China. For years on this program, experts warned the world is over-dependent on just a few major breadbaskets, the regions that produce most of the world's wheat, corn, and more. One major source for exports is the Great Steppes region, which spans both Russia and the Ukraine. About a quarter of all wheat on international markets comes from Russia and the Ukraine. They also produce and export over three-quarters of the sunflower oil trade, and about a sixth of maize or corn on world markets. 
Both Russia and Ukraine have announced a halt to grain exports this year because of the war. That will leave many countries in the Middle East and beyond hungry and prey to sky-high bread prices. Revolutions or war could result in some places. Experience has shown when one big growing area fails, other regions can usually make up the difference, although that becomes more strained as world population continues to grow. The crisis continues if another big producer also fails to reach a good harvest. Key here? The largest wheat producer in the world is not Russia or America, but China. At 134 million metric tons, China outproduces the United States almost two to one, with the U.S. at 47 million metric tons. But China exports little. They have 1.4 billion people to feed at home. They are still buying grains on the international market. Bloomberg News quotes China's agricultural minister, Tang Rijian, saying, quote, China faces big difficulties in food production because of the unusual floods last autumn. Many farming experts and technicians told us that crop conditions this year could be the worst in history, end quote. Millions of acres of cropland was damaged in China by record-breaking rains and floods, likely made that extreme by climate change. The Chinese acknowledge it. So the Chinese will be competing in the international market to buy wheat, corn, and other agricultural products to make up their losses and feed the people of China. That means war and climate change have coincided to produce a shortage of essential grains not seen in the last 50 years. The scientific journal Nature rushed out a warning editorial called Broken Bread, Avert Global Wheat Crisis Caused by Invasion of Ukraine. Beyond the war, mixed with the pandemic, are supply chain problems for agricultural fertilizer and fuels. The sanctions will further cripple that trade. Food prices are already on the rise, and we are just at the start of this crisis. No one knows how far food inflation will go or how fast. Remember, Canada and the United States, even with Australia, do not produce enough grains to feed the world. And there is no guarantee that extreme weather will not hit the North American harvest this year. As you know, the Chernobyl nuclear site is the horror that keeps on giving. Radiation measurements show an uptick from the site, attributed to Russian tanks and other vehicles stirring up radioactive soil in the exclusion zone. Worse, satellite images and reports from Ukraine show forest fires in the exclusion zone, which also releases more radiation. And they can't get in there to fight the fires because of the war. As reported by the BBC, Ukrainian officials further claim Russian troops looted and wrecked the central analytical laboratory at the Chernobyl site. The lab was required to monitor and test for radioactivity, and now it's gone, it's offline. Over 25 years later, this nuclear power site remains an international risk, one that will continue into the next century and beyond. That's nuclear power. It gets more complicated. According to the Turkish journalist Pinar Demirakan, until 2005, Russia made over $200 million a year from Ukraine by taking back their waste from Ukrainian nuclear reactors. In 2005, the Ukrainians began a program of on-site storage using an American technology from the company Holtec, and that's used in the U.S. as well. And that began its real operation in 2021, and that is why nuclear waste was found at the various Ukrainian reactors that were attacked by the Russians 
including the big Zaporizhia nuclear power complex taken by the Russians in early March. If the Russians conquered Ukraine, perhaps they hoped to get that $200 million a year back. I will leave out all the known risks of Holtec on-site nuclear storage systems, which obviously can be super dangerous in any war, terrorist attack, or just a simple grid breakdown taking away necessary cooling power. I suggest you read the illuminating article titled Rosatom's Woes Before and Beyond the War, Implications of Russia's Embattled Nuclear Power Industry, posted March 6, 2022 at dianuke.org. You'll find a link in my blog at ecoshock.org. Meanwhile, the pandemic is already back with a huge wave of disease and deaths in Asia and rising numbers in Europe, including Britain. Analysis of sewage in North America in both Canada and the United States show the new BA2 virus is already present and growing. The highly transmissible variant will probably find the unvaccinated and anyone with waning immunity. With all precautions dropped for political reasons, we do not know if this will be another killer wave or something less. I'm hoping something less, but I am keeping my mask on in public places. The virus never stays in one part of the world. And now we move on to a life-and-death problem for hundreds of millions of people. Maybe some people don't care, because these folks are in Africa. But as we will hear, what happens in Africa does not stay there. Trouble travels all over the world. So it comes down to this. Humans need to recognize one another as brothers and sisters of a common species. We stand or fail together as a species on this small planet. You probably never experienced water stress for more than an hour or two. Thirsty? Enjoy a cold glass of drinking water. Worried about disease? Wash your hands. Except in Africa, the United Nations reports hundreds of millions of people can't find enough water to do either one. Water insecurity means personal hardship for men, women, and children. Lack of water can lead to civil unrest, mass migration, wars, and diseases that spread to every continent. Yes, we do need to know and to care. How big is water scarcity on Earth's second largest continent? We barely know. The best picture so far just came out in the March 2022 report, Water Security in Africa, a Preliminary Assessment. We reached one of the co-authors, Dr. Dominda Pereira. A civil engineer from Sri Lanka, Pereira earned his doctorate in urban and environmental engineering at Kyushu University in Japan. Now he is senior researcher for hydrology and water resources at the United Nations University and adjunct professor at both University of Ottawa and McMaster University from Canada. Duminda Pereira, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. Your international team finds almost a third of people in Africa do not have basic drinking water service. How do you define that? Yeah, actually, uh, it is uh, the finding is surprising. Um, it's nearly one-third of uh, African region. Uh, people doesn't have uh, drinking water. Actually, this is the limited water supply. It includes uh, the water availability at at their premises or whether if they can collect water from within 30 minutes uh, uh, round trip. We consider those uh, two aspects when we calculate or estimate the water availability for drinking and then it came out that uh, it's one-third of Africa doesn't have uh, drinking enough drinking water. 
Right. Africa is huge, though, with water situations as different as the Sahara Desert and the wet Congo rainforest. How did your team tackle the water problem over such a wide range? We separated Africa into sub-regions like North Africa, East, West, uh, Central, and Southern Africa. So in our assessment, we assess countries individually and sub-region level. We have uh, developed 10 indicators. If I name them, access to drinking water, access to sanitation, hygiene and health, water availability, efficiency of water use, water infrastructure, water quality, water governance, water disaster risk, and physiography. Uh, Based on those 10 indicators, we rank them from um, 0 to 100. And uh, then again, we classify them into five categories. I can say the categories emerging. If the score is less than 45, it is emerging. That means very low water security overall. And then flight is the next stage. It is 45 to 60. It is flight. And the modest is from 60 to 75 is the modest level of water security. Uh, 75 to 90 is the effective. And above 90, we classify it as model. Unfortunately, we couldn't find any country in the region above score, score above 70. That means uh, no effect or model country in the region. The top scorer is Egypt. It is close to 70 score. That is the highest. And then uh, followed by Botswana, Gabon, Mauritius, Tunisia. They are the top five countries in the region in the modest level of water security. In the least water security, I can name the three countries. They are Somalia, Chad, and Niger. Their score is very low. In overall, there are 13 countries in the modest level of water security, and 22 countries are in the slight water security stage, and 19 countries are least water security. So there are 19 countries in Africa where water availability and and sanitation are are really in an emergency state pretty well every year? We uh, started uh, from uh, the data availability, based on the data availability. Our benchmark year is 2015, and we assess uh, the progress between 2015 to 2020. And uh, the research shows that only 29 countries show a little bit of progress, not a big progress, like slight progress within this five years' time, and 25 countries has no progress in overall. 29 countries has slight progress, 25 countries has no progress within this uh, five-year time. And that's despite all the development goals that were set out in various conferences and people talked about it and, and still no progress in so many countries. Sadly, many people in North America imagine Africans still live in a jungle or a desert oasis. The reality is about 50% of Africans live in urban areas, including very large cities, We recall zero day, the day when Cape Town, South Africa, expected to run out of water. Talk to us about water scarcity in African cities. In our assessment, we did not focus on big cities. We did the overall uh, country-level, national-level assessment. Of course, I understood that uh, in the local, I mean, in local level, big cities are located all over Africa with huge populations. Uh, and their sanitation and the access to the drinking water is very low, especially uh, the shocking that uh, 
our indicator two, it uh, comes for the health uh, sanitation. Sanitation overall in Africa is very low. Hand washing facilities are very limited, irrespective of the region, except North America and some of the countries in Southern Africa. Overall, it is very low. Then uh, you can imagine uh, in the national level, it is very low. And in the urban centers, it should be more stressful or high insecure because of the large population. This new UN University assessment just out for World Water Day 2022 says, quote, The overall low state of provision of personal and communal hygiene services in Africa is a major water security problem in the context of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and its deadly effects. Talk to us about that, Duminda. This situation um, definitely intensified the COVID-19 because uh, in our assessment, it shows the hand-washing facilities, which is uh, recommended by WHO uh, for as a preventive measure, measure of COVID. But in Africa, hand-washing facilities is very low. Uh, sanitation services are, are very low level. So definitely there should be a very significant impact on that one to the COVID-19 spread and uh, their remediation measures. You have expertise in large uh, storage methods for water. Why don't water-stressed African countries build more dams to store the water when it is available? Uh, In way, we uh, did an assessment previously about water storage in different countries. In that assessment also, we found Africa has a very limited water storage. Unfortunately, um, in Africa... There are uh, some countries, they are having a lot of water resources, especially in Central Africa. But um, the storage capacities are very low, except a few countries. Uh, I totally agree that uh, water storage uh, should be increased in Africa. So uh, I can say by by numbers, like if I talk about uh, more about water storage per capita, we, we uh, assess per capita water storage considering only the large dams because of the data limitation. So in that case, I think Ghana, Ghana has scored the top. It has a huge capacity of water storage, followed by Zimbabwe, Zambia, especially Zimbabwe, Zambia, because there are large reservoirs. But other than uh, those few countries, other countries has very low level of water storage, especially about the large dams, which are built for the water irrigation, and uh, hydropower, water supply, such functions. Well, it's not easy even when they are built because, uh, for example, we find out that Ethiopia is building the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, or GERD. It's the biggest hydroelectric project in Africa. It just began producing electricity in late February this year. And yet some see it as a potential source for a water war, potentially with Egypt. What do you think? Actually, in our assessment, uh, Egypt came as the most water-dependent country. Same time, it is the most water-secure country in Africa. So that shows the difference. Like, of course, uh, because we have uh, assessed the water dependence separately. There are changes in rainfall in some African regions due to climate change, and uh, the continent is probably heating up. I was surprised not to see more about climate change in this assessment. Actually, we have it. We consider it in the disaster risk because climate change, it impacts us most likely disaster. It can be either mostly in Africa, it can be either floods and drought. 
we included that one as a index uh, indicator 9 which shows the disaster risk index it calculates the exposure and vulnerability and their capacities of different countries for the disaster indirectly we measure the climate change and almost all the countries disaster risk has increased within those 5 years and some african countries don't have an accurate census they don't know how many people are in the country much less statistics on water access how did the experts behind this report make up for that lack of data actually that is the most challenging part we faced actually we emphasized that one very clearly in the report also lack of data is a big problem in africa and it it made us uh, this job very challenging so to overcome uh, this issue we added some strategies like we for an example for the water quality uh, it is the least recorded uh, data in africa for us i mean in this assessment we found that and then to overcome that one we used uh, we tried several proxies at the end we used the wastewater treatment uh, percentage as a proxy to water quality we tried for an example we tried another source like wo- lake water quality application of fertilizer those kind of things we tried but uh, at the end uh, we had to go with uh, wastewater treatment uh, percentage as a proxy to water quality uh, this kind of, that is one of the strategy we um, adopted it based on the indicators some indicators uh, we could find enough data but some indicators we couldn't find so if uh, in our assessment if uh, uh, there are 54 countries at least uh, 50% of those countries doesn't have such data then we had to drop that um, indicator so we had to develop another indicator like that mainly in our report we uh, extracted data from sustainable development goal because they have a goal 6 for the water so most of the data are recorded for the sdg 6 but it is not enough uh, that is uh, the big problem in um, in africa i think that should be another indicator uh, how they record data because because this uh, connected with other global agendas as you mentioned the sustainable development goals send the framework for disaster risk management all need data to assess because at the end of 2030 if the target is to measure the success of achieving those goals the measurement of those goals will be based on data if you don't have data we cannot measure the success so or the progress at least so then i think from now on we have to clearly uh, kind of emphasize the importance of data collection not only collection monitoring collection and storage and sharing those things are very very important The Economist is one of several sources projecting Africa's population will double by 2050. Uh, even as it is now, we're in trouble and progress is slow and even not happening in some countries. Is it too harsh to say Africa's water security problems can never be solved without population control as well? This rate of progress, it is hardly achieve uh, 2030 goals. So, if the population is increasing their water demand water stress is rapidly increase and then the economical strength of those countries will be a challenging to spend on this kind of infrastructure for the water supply drainage storage those kind of thing so i think i i can incline with your suggestion yes it's really challenge you are listening to radio ecoshock i'm alex our guest is dr tuminda perera 
co-author of the new United Nations University report, Water Security in Africa, a Preliminary Assessment. Research by the Pacific Institute suggests water wars are less likely between African countries. They tend to work things out, but it may show up in ethnic or clan clashes within countries, perhaps a civil war or attempts at genocide. Does the new assessment suggest anything about the security situation when it comes to water scarcity? Not directly, but indirectly we have assessed the the governance. It includes how they manage water and also we we assess the water dependency and uh, water physiography. Like uh, in the water dependency is uh, not actually this, uh, what is the, how they depend on the water resources from outside, not uh, only the internal water. So actually other than uh, the measurement of water governance, we did not consider the security or kind of internal conflicts. These kind of things are... We did not include. Actually, that is a very good suggestion for the future assessment because this is a very primary assessment. We we did the initiative. I think uh, it's time for the uh, the region or the African um, policymakers and the governments to think about this situation seriously and adding more indicators and improve this tool because this is really important but very good initiative. In 2019, Ahmad Hassan and colleagues published their paper, Assessment of Physical Water Scarcity in Africa, using GRACE and TRMM satellite data. Did you use satellite data in this new UN assessment? To keep it open and transparent and clear, so we used only the uh, publicly available data, and of course those satellite imagery data we did not use because we have to make it very simple and uh, very straightforward way. When we think about these problems, we ask ourselves, well, who is supposed to fix this? Is this a United Nations problem, multinational banks, the, the former colonial countries, all of us? I know this isn't part of your report, but you must admit that's the first question that comes to mind. Who's going to help with this? Exactly. So from our side, we show the issue but now, uh, without solving this one, no point of showing the problem. So I, I think uh, from now on, uh, as a as a region, I think uh, they have more responsibility, especially for the African countries' government, uh, to implement and um, the outcome of this report. Especially, they can start with uh, collecting data and then um, how to improve their their monitoring and storing and sharing. Those are very important. I think uh, in Africa there are a lot of uh, UN agencies are working on uh, different different aspects of development, so they can also work on together to improve the water st- uh, status in Africa. Other than that, I think uh, in African um, Development uh, Bank and African Union Development Agency, they also have a big role to play on this, other than uh, like World Bank or United Nations specifically. Uh, they also have a major role in uh, improve the water security status in Africa. I think we'll also see China as a major player. They're doing a lot of investment in Africa. Now, Duminda, when we break down these big numbers, we're talking about hundreds of millions of people, to a personal level, when we think of each person, this has to be one of the saddest assessments I've read in a long time. And I think the the problem that you really point to is we're not even ready to figure out who's going to fix this and how much it will cost because 
we've barely got a grasp on how big the problem is, and that's what you're trying to get at. How big is this problem? I think this problem affects more than 50% of the population in Africa in more or less in different angles. It can be somebody will uh, not have enough drinking water, somebody may have not sanitation facilities. Some may have not enough water for the irrigation. Some may have facing um, floods and droughts for their industries or living. So it is multidimensional and multisectorial. Uh, and in the personal level, I think uh, water is a human right. So water is everybody's life, depend on. So it is everybody's problem. It is a uh, big uh, population live there and their population growth is about 2% or 2.5, I think, yeah, like that. So. It is, at the end, it is not only the governments, not only the donors, or not only the investors, but also uh, there is another part can play a big role is academia or the researchers. So like that, we also tried uh, our best uh, to produce this report. Uh, now, I think uh, another part is like uh, exploring for the new water resources available, especially the, like groundwater. Groundwater is a big uh, resource there, and the water use efficiency is one of the limited uh, uh, progressing the water use efficiency also because that is uh, if they improve the water water use efficiency that is also one solution for to overcome the water scarcity and uh, like that way the policymakers international organizations donors academia and professional and the citizens i think everybody have to work together to show some significant progress by 2030 from Ontario, Canada, we've been speaking with Dr. Dominda Pereira. He is with the United Nations University. You can learn about this urgent water problem in Africa. Search for Water Security in Africa, a preliminary assessment, or find a link in my blog at ecoshock.org. Dominda, thank you for sharing your work with us. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you very much, Alex. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. That's it for this show. Check out all our past programs free at ecoshock.org. Thank you for listening, and let's meet up again next week.